Professor Palmer, in the last few weeks, we have seen uh, all sorts of policing rollout as a response to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. While I'm sure many in the community are very uh, thankful for the role that police and other essential services are playing in dealing with this pandemic, certain issues have been raised around potential infringements on our civil liberties and other rights, and just in general, the uh, the consistency of this policing. We've recently had uh, incidences such as an El Plata on a practice drive fined over $1,500 uh, before having that fine withdrawn due to a confusion within the community. As a, a woman's been followed by police while driving to visit her son's grave, we've had funerals interrupted and so forth. There's been uh, you know some quite significant incidents of what people might refer to as uh, over-policing or police perhaps uh, going beyond what we would hope to be their their reach. Can I just start by asking, in the last few weeks, as, as someone who you know is, is very much aware of, of this field and studies policing uh, through, through your work, what, what have been some of your observations? And do you have a feeling that perhaps policing has been uh, heavy-handed? Or what, what's, just, what's your general feeling, first and foremost? I, I think you've got to go back to the start of it in the sense of um, what, what, what we're going through uh, in Australia and elsewhere, it's not just Australia, but we're going through a, a major adjustment um, to deal with a health condition, the pandemic. And part of that adjustment is the kind of lockdown that we're experiencing in different degrees and in different ways across across the country. I'll just focus on Australia. And what, what this involves is a dramatic increase in the discretionary powers of the police. Um, and it's the, these kinds of powers that are often drafted in such vague terms that the police don't understand them. The public certainly doesn't understand them. I don't understand them at times. Um, I myself have had to engage in a couple of things where I had to go back and check health statements to understand what I could and couldn't do. Now, that that is just a recipe for bad policing. Now, I'm not saying all policing is bad. Don't, don't confuse that message. But what I am saying is that we've seen many examples, far too many in my mind, examples where the, the police themselves don't really understand the what's contained in their powers. And so they're, they're policing and, and using their discretion in ways that have not, not been helpful. It's settled down a bit now, but there still is that basic problem that we have these highly discretionary laws that aren't well understood by the community. They're, there's there's some tensions between different aspects of these laws that justify some things in some places, other things in other places, uh, and the like. So that has led in some cases to heavy-handed policing for sure. Uh, and, and we also have to think that this is potentially going to last for a long time. Um, it, some places might open up earlier than others, but these laws are going to be in place one shape or form for, in my mind, months to come. Certainly. Now, we have to acknowledge this has all happened very fast and perhaps that might be one of one of the major issues is people sort of scrambling to deal with this circumstance. However, there really seems to be a lack of consistency, particularly in terms of different states. Now, of course, considering that different states have different levels of, uh, I guess, seriousness in regard to COVID-19, there really seems to be an inconsistency across the states as to what, how police are responding to this and how the lockdowns are being enforced. And with that has come a considerable amount of confusion. I know here in Western Australia, where we don't necessarily have fines for, for instance, uh, disobeying sort of uh, social distancing uh, rules and so forth, there's a lot of confusion around that. Do you, do you think that's a major aspect of this, is that people just aren't being properly informed as to what the new laws and regulations are? 
Yeah, I think the latter part of that is right. I mean, in the former case of different laws in different states, that's just how uh, our federation works, that uh, criminal law, criminal justice is practised largely at the state level. So each state can have its own rules and regulations and the police enforcing those. Um, so that, that's understandable. But the, the, the idea that there is confusion and, uh, about the lack of clarity, um, that is important because if, you, if you're not clear on what the law is, or at least reasonably clear on what the law is, it does create um, uncertainty in the population. And uh, the refinement that has occurred over the last few weeks has made it a, a bit clearer. But where, where there is a further tension is the rationale underpinning the, the laws, the social distancing requirements, the um, only essential travel requirements and so on. You don't get a sense of uh, clarity to the rationale behind it. Just to give you one example, uh, leading into Easter... New South Wales said, no, you, people who, who have a holiday home, you cannot go and travel to your holiday home. That is non-essential travel. Victoria, which has been stricter on these things, said, well, if you've got a holiday home, yes, you can go and travel to that holiday home as long as you maintain quarantining down there and social distancing. So the, the law, as I said before, the laws can be different in different states, but you have to tie it back to the rationale, rationale underpinning the law. That is, we're trying to deal with the pandemic. The pandemic requires social distancing, requires only essential travel, so therefore you would expect a greater level of consistency across across the state. Certainly New South Wales and Victoria, which have been uh, much uh, much uh, harsher in terms of the laws that they've introduced, because they've also been in states with, with um, significantly higher uh, numbers of, of uh, in, infections. I mean, WA is interesting because not only um, did WA introduce a hard border between WA and the rest of the country, as well as the international border, but WA also introduced these internal... Uh, zones um, where people are not meant to be travelling outside of those zones where, where they're located unless there's an essential reason and, and purpose for doing so. <clears throat> but in, in doing that, the New South Wales Police uh, have also introduced some other additional surveillance things that build on build on existing surveillance but push it that little bit harder. Uh, about uh, probably 10 days ago or a week to 10 days ago, they got additional uh, funding for, from the uh, state for new police uh, to be fast-tracked through the academy. But they also got funding to have, I think it was 200 electronic bracelets being purchased to be used for people who have been uh, forced into quarantine and it's going to be used to enforce the quarantine. So general population electronic track, tracking bracelets. And they also are purchasing a, an extra 100 number plate recognition cameras. These are the cameras that uh, can be either mobile or fixed that actually uh, record the number plates of the vehicles going past. And these create huge databases of vehicles, vehicle movement and so on. And they're using it to, to enforce these internal zones. But they raise a whole lot of other questions about the kinds of new surveillance capacities, new surveillance technologies that are creeping in uh, behind the pandemic, but will stay with us. There'll be a legacy of the pandemic in terms of surveillance and policing practices. And that is of concern. Certainly, Professor Palmer, and that's uh, one topic I really wanted to speak to you about. We've seen globally uh, states uh, really sort of utilising um, surveillance uh, quite quite sort of incredibly, really. I mean, there's the example of in, in South Korea where people that have been infected with the coronavirus were interviewed by the state and then the, all of their um, movements were, were sort of tracked and monitored on, on huge sort of public maps. And then the, the, the majority of the population were encouraged to, to download applications that would then monitor their movements and so forth. As, as you say there, it's quite worrying um, that these 
measures may still be in place. Uh, how do you think this is changing the nature of policing, not just here in Australia, but globally? And, and how does surveillance uh, really tie into that? Um, well, I'll do a bit of future gazing, if that's okay, um, because it does relate to some other broader developments in policing. It's what's referred to as platform policing, where uh, prior to the pandemic, there's been a whole lot of developments around the use of um, platforms, which is basically software, some hardware and software, that uh, analyse large amounts of data and use artificial intelligence to manipulate that data that then direct policing in different ways. Now, what, what you need to make that data richer and richer is more and more sensors. So number plate readers, tracking devices, um, facial recognition, all of these kinds of things, they feed enormous amounts of data into the platform that then you can use to enhance your capacity for population surveillance. And there's a lot of, a lot of writing on this going on at the moment because of the, the fears of, of what this creates in terms of enhanced surveillance practices without the normal checks that you have on police, such as you know, suspicion, the requirement for warrants, these kinds of things, they've kind of been pushed aside. So what we have is a deeper, richer, um, thicker surveillance level um, going on in the broader population on an, in an everyday sense. And that, to me, is one of the big unknowns, how much this is actually developed, well, we know part of it at least, how much this is being pushed by pandemic policing which will be a legacy of the pandemic, that police will have a lot more of this technology, a lot more developments in platform policing, which will give them a lot more capability in, in terms of surveillance in everyday life. Professor Palmer, in your article in the conversation, you referenced the Fitzgerald Inquiry. Uh, for those unfamiliar, the Fitzgerald Inquiry was initiated by Queensland's Police Minister and then Deputy Premier Bill Gunn back in uh, 1987. And it, it really uh, sort of transformed policing in Queensland and perhaps in Australia and introduced a lot more, I guess, uh, safeguards and, and, and regulation of, of policing in Australia. Uh, you reference it in, in terms of you know, us, us being sort of looking to the Fitzgerald Inquiry in terms of being able to develop better procedures around policing in Australia, keeping in mind what you've just spoken a, a, about in terms of platform policing and this new sort of surveillance reality that we're moving towards. What do you think that something like the Fitzgerald Inquiry can offer us in terms of a way forward in which we can get the balance right between policing and ensuring that there is accountability and transparency and, most importantly, trust within the community? It's a good question, and, and I deliberately use the Fitzgerald Inquiry because um, it's getting a little bit old in the tooth, if you like, and so for, for a lot of people, and I teach a lot of young people in their um, late teens and early 20s as part of my student cohort um, and you know, they weren't born at the time of the Fitzgerald Inquiry and the reason why I think it's really important is it did two things. One we, most people know about if they're thinking about policing broadly and that is that it identified systemic corruption and put forward a pathway for investigating and having in new institutional developments to ensure ongoing accountability of, of policing. And you're right, it, it changed police accountability in the ways in which we thought about um, misconduct, corruption and those kinds of things. Across the country, we had a wave of inquiries, uh, with the exception of Victoria, unfortunately, um, until recently, um, across the country and, and some major reforms around accountability. <coughs> Excuse me. But the, the other thing it did, which is less commonly referred to, is it said discretion is at the heart of policing. What, what a lot of police work involves is a, is a discretion about how to proceed or, or even not to proceed. And that 
for that discretion, um, that has to be exercised. It's not something you can eliminate. You have to have discretion in police work. And we want good discretion and fair discretion. And we want to be able to trust the police in the use of discretion. So what Fitzgerald is saying, you need to develop consent to policing so that people do trust that police work is, is legitimate, it is fair, it is reasonable. Now, if we bring that into the, the current period, what, what has been happening, I, I argue, for, for a, long, a long time now, um, certainly over the last decade in terms of surveillance technologies, we're having these technologies introduced um, through the back door almost, where they do, the police in, in various states and territories will do experiments. So, so they don't actually go forward uh, politically through, 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 through the relevant government to say, you know, this, we, we're thinking about, we want to use this kind of technology, here's the reasons, here's the justifications, here's how we're going to do it, Here, how, here's how we're going to make sure it's used reasonably, appropriately, does the community support that? And that should be then put forward in state uh, political platforms when they are seeking an election. Um, that's not been happening. So automatic number plate, that really is one example, which is very, really big now. Um, <clears throat> there was actually a major national report done on this where they tried they actually wanted to have a national uh, base scheme it fell apart because of each of the, the states wanted to protect their own turf to some degree it's a long story to that which i won't go into much detail but it was done in secret the report was made secret until i i think it was a channel 7 um uh, journalist found out about it and went and put in a freedom of information application that then opened it up and it got released <coughs> excuse me but it's the same as with, with a lot of these other technologies the most recent one has been body-worn cameras. They started doing a whole lot of micro-experiments with them, but it was never put to the population in terms of them to the state or federal levels, in terms of these, this is the kind of um, technology we want to use, here's how we want to use it, here's why we want to use it, and here's how we're going to ensure accountability. Public comment, put it out as a policy statement, engage with public comment, not done. So uh, the problem I, I see is that when you've got these technological developments, which greatly increase the capacity, the surveillance capacities of the state through the police, you're undermining community trust. You're undermining um, community sense of legitimacy of the use of these surveillance practices by doing them either in secret or in semi-secret through trials and experimentation and then looking for an opportunity where you can say, we need this technology now and we need a lot more of it. Pandemics, a beautiful opportunity for that argument to happen.